1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box.
2: NYC, this is CNBC Control 2.
0: CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics.
3: All right, we're coming to it next.
0: Today on Squawk Pod. A history-making week on Wall Street, the February sell-off is intensifying as the coronavirus spreads.
4: The first thousand-point day was very unsettling. And then you get a couple of more, and it's it's incredibly unsettling.
0: The Dow falling 1,200 points Thursday, the biggest point drop in a single day ever and the fastest ever correction from an all-time high.
4: Andrew's going to make the joke, what, how does it compare to 1929? I
5: was not there for 29.
0: Kevin Warsh, a Fed governor during the financial crisis, urges the central bank to cut interest rates in response to the coronavirus outbreak.
5: If I were them, this would not be the time to say, well, I'm going to preserve my M.O.
0: And Warren Buffett, what the the 89-year-old chairman of Berkshire Hathaway says about Berkshire after Buffett.
6: We're well prepared for succession. It's almost going to be embarrassing, how well.
0: I am CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Friday, finally, February 28th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now.
1: Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue,
0: Good
7: morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And with us for the hour is Steve Grasso. He is Stuart Frankel, director of institutional sales. And Steve, it's good to have you here today. Good to be here. Folks, let's get right to the markets because the Dow just had its biggest point drop in history, falling 1,191 points. That's 1,300 points this week alone. That's a drop of more than 11 percent. And in fact, the Dow is down almost 13 percent from its highs. The S&P 500 had its worst day since August of 2011. And by the way, this is the fastest correction. A 10 percent drop from the highs in the history of the stock market happened in just about six days.
8: Let's provide a little bit of historical context for all of this. A sell-off like this does not happen very often. Uh, look back at similar four-day routes in the Dow show They are usually tied to an event, usually a very specific event. In 1998, it was the collapse of the massive hedge fund long-term capital and the Russian financial crisis. The Dow then lost 1,063 points, or 12%. Then in 2001, the September 11th attacks resulted in a 1,200-point drop, also a 12% drop then. Then, the big one, 2008, the financial crisis led to a four-day decline in the Dow of more than 1,500 points, and... Today, it is the coronavirus and a four-day loss now of more than 3,200 uh, that, or percent. That, really that was a big one for, for some people. But the big one was
4: 1987. Oh, and It wasn't really bugs. precipitated by any specific event other than portfolio insurance combined with th- this vortex of future selling. And 22 percent in a day. 22 percent in a
8: day. But I want to make a point about all of these. Mm-hmm in virtually every instance, there was a firewall. And what I mean by a firewall was, there was some kind of action that was taken to end the route. The Fed announced different plans. Treasury, in the case of 2008, announced different plans. Back during long-term capital, plans were made. There were things that, there was a a piece of news which seemed to uh, provide some semblance of confidence back into the market. And so, the question in this instance is what could that piece of news be? Or do we continue to go south until that piece of news emerges? We're on a Friday. The real people question to me is do you Are doubt- people going to walk into this weekend wanting to, to hold no. on to stocks? Because no. there could be a thousand cases. Because who knows cases. what's going uh, right. to happen over the weekend? And, and the I don't want to cycle. It's going
4: to be worse this but weekend. But I've, right. I've already gone past that. And I've, I've decided that this market has discounted. A lot already uh, that's what I'm saying I'm with and you. even on a I'm fri- with you. even on a Friday I'm we are you. now I mean we're, we're looking at the, the, like the possibility of of having a negative GDP near-term not sometime in 2020 and in China uh, maybe a flat like a zero or something. I feel as if you really think that's gonna happen
8: look uh, I can give you lots of optimistic pieces right. that this, this, is, what, this is what this is what was mild I, I was symptoms
4: in, m- m- mild symptoms I read that and was like, it, that should be good. Now I know it's spreading it more.
7: That's The the problem is, like if you have something that has very severe symptoms, right, it, it burns itself out because it, it kills the host before it gets to the other. Part. Part. You could say but it's still the mortality
3: rate that we're looking at. We're not looking at, with MERS, you had a 35% mortality it, rate. Right. When, when, with SARS, you had a 10%. Ebola. Ebola's a 90% a, a, mortality rate. Yeah, but I feel what happens, like this market Steve, is pricing the, in. I,
7: look, I, I agree. I put some money right. into the S&P 500 yesterday because I, I thought okay, this is a big sell-off, but I also think what happens if you start to see school closures? I mean, it's the human reaction. But don't you think think
4: we're anticipating? I think think the market already
3: reflects that. You know you're going to see school closures, because if schools don't close, they're going to be on the line. So the whole protocol is you have to have a protocol. So you tell me. There are notes
8: going out to corporations all over America saying non-essential international travel, nay. Non-essential domestic travel, no good. I mean, so then the question is, when does that kind of news roll off? You've
7: got to wait till I, you hear from the health officials. When, no. when
4: you brought up long-term capital, it's like a hedge fund goes belly up. We're talking about a global pand- pand- pandemic. I mean, it seems so much worse. And there is no magic bullet. I mean, I could well, look, envision some type vaccine of vaccine, tomorrow, vaccine tomorrow, some kind of vaccine, a, uh, some kind of therapeutic. But I'm trying the to Fed look at... The lowering rates is not going to do it. Probably not. By definition, if you go 12% from the highs in the quickest time ever... The market is discounting something really quickly. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm not looking for silver linings, although I think we shouldn't be all, all gloom and doom necessarily. But short, sharp corrections typically are ones that are eventually...
8: Settled by hockey regaining a lot. No, uh, yeah. I absolutely believe there's a hockey stick to this at some point. The question is, what I'm is... worried about a big U. No, that no, could... I, no. I'm not worried about that. Actually, no. I think there's a hockey stick You're looking you looking for a V? You just it, tell no, he me just doesn't
7: what... Know it... how long the the. Yeah. Long the oh, a, a hockey stick. How long yeah, the yeah, hockey you just stick, tell yeah. me what
8: is the thing that's going to flip it. That's what I'm. But did do. you
4: ever know what the thing was before? No, that's yeah. tough. Right. Not so you really. Mean, in hindsight, you're, you're acting like we knew something that was happening. There was real fear in 87. We had no idea how that was going to play itself out. I mean, when you see, you know, all the Dow components were like single digits that day. I was looking at American Express at four dollars a share. My my screen, you weren't around right. No, that, were. no, I was in high school. But it wa- <laughs> Andrew's going to make the joke, what, how does it compare to 1929? I was not there for 29, but I was there <laughs> as a stockbroker um, just... Soil in my wares in in 1987 under my desk. I mean, it was horrific. And every time you go
3: through that, you don't know the black swan event and you don't know the, the white dove event.
0: Some updates on coronavirus and the market sell-off around the world. In Europe, travel disruptions have hit airlines. Finnair and IAG, which owns British Airways, have issued profit warnings. And Germany's government has reportedly quarantined 1,000 people in a town in the western part of the country. In South Korea, Hyundai Motor closed one of its factories after a worker tested positive for the coronavirus. The total number of cases there is above 2,300. Tokyo Disney will close this weekend through March 15th. Japan has suspended all elementary, junior high, and high schools in the country for most of March. New Zealand has confirmed its first case of coronavirus, and Nigeria confirmed the first case in sub-Saharan Africa. And in China, where this whole story began, the total number of reported cases is nearing 79,000.
4: Do we believe China when they say that, that it looks like it's the Severity is is lessening in well, there's believe, fewer do cases. You believe China? If you do believe that, I
7: believe the medical expert who we had on yesterday, who said, "Look, as they send people back to work, it's going to pick up again"? If people, it, 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 China did the right thing by shutting things down, and as but result, if eighty thousand, if stopped, you if
4: you stopped it somewhere near eighty or hundred thousand in a country in a country with one two billion people. Look, I think
7: the measures China took helped tremendously right, by right. really seriously shutting things down. But now they are worried about the economic impact know. of that and sending people back to work. I mean, I've certainly
4: I, I went to, uh, to the gym yesterday and I told a guy that I know there who works. I said, I hope you have saved some money because you're going to no one's going to be here in two weeks. So, I mean, in my own mind, I'm I'm afraid and I'm, I'm discounting the worst-case scenario, and I'm not sure that comes to pass. But, I, I, but,
7: I also, you know, think you the, all the machines, the people sweating
4: on the machines, you think people are going to go there? No, it, but I, I think a, if you
7: look at it the long-term, I think you're right, but I also, the I'm hoping I money not. in the S&P 500, I'm saying days, in my days, mind, days I've already
4: discounted it. Maybe the market has discounted too much.
7: Okay, you're right. You don't Joe was way ahead of this. It, he stopped
4: long-term. going to the gym two years I, ago <laughs> based on this pandemic. I was there yesterday, I just said. But seriously, I mean, all the weights, people, I couldn't help but think, if you were there, you'd be like you'd I do, I wiped
7: down but at the yeah. same time it's like this too will pass right people hear headlines like this and they right. get concerned particularly as you head into a weekend a,
3: a, a lot of this stuff is not the individual investor saying let me sell everything I have a lot of this stuff is deleveraging where you have trigger effects right. with accounts that have to sell mass selling program orders right. this is not um, the individual sitting home saying I don't want to own out. stocks right. anymore right You're not seeing that
5: it's
4: just the, the first thousand-point day was very unsettling and then you get a couple more and it's, it's incredibly unsettling but you wonder when you're doubting you're going to get the first thousand point day if you get four of them or if you're down four thousand points for the week aren't you discounting some oh, yeah. very serious I, I do
7: think so so, I, so. But I, I but know I it's think, a Friday, but, I but I'm, I'm going to hold out hope. People st- aren't
4: realizing
3: how much it is electronics and algorithms that, too. that are just triggering off of moving averages, off of whatever average in the overall market says spits out a thousand sell orders. And that's truly, 82. unfortunately, that's what happens with
4: the marketplace. I don't know whether I should hope on a Friday for stabilization, but that's what I'm hoping for.
7: Well, th- what, what was concerning yesterday is hearing Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, saying... Yeah, we have 8,400 400 people and, and that we're monitoring kits. right now, but only 200 kits. If the CDC could more quickly get those kits out to people for testing, I think that that would probably be very reassuring.
4: Even a casual observer has uh, obviously seen what's happened uh, this week. So you don't have to be a, 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 an avid stock market uh, aficionado. Even if you have a 401k, I'm sure you know what's happening. And uh, the markets and many widely held stocks uh, have dipped into bear market territory. The historic sell-off may have many people worried about those retirement plans. 401Ks and other investments joining us to discuss uh, the state of the retail investors. J.J. Kinahan, chief market strategist at TD Ameritrade. And in breaks in the past, J.J., I've seen times when the average investor and uh, people not quite as close to the, the trees in the forest have actually fared better and, and maybe not panicked as much as the professionals. What are we seeing this time around?
1: Yeah, I think you bring up an important point. We always hear don't be emotional about it. And uh, it's kind of interesting that most of the people I hear that from are managing other people's money instead of their own. And so the one thing I would say is the, uh, the, the first thing is people do get emotional about money. You know, I just read recently it's the number one cause of fights in a marriage. But let, taking a step back, if you are nervous, don't think all or none. I think that's the mistake people make, Joe, is they get, uh, they get nervous and they sell out their whole portfolio. That is a huge mistake in most cases. You know, if you're really that nervous about it and you have to sell something, make it a small percentage. And, in fact, longer term, what tells us is these are often nice times to buy. Not saying, you know, you guys had a great discussion a few minutes ago with Mike about is this the bottom, isn't this the bottom. Nobody knows for sure. But, you know, I, I really think the partial, if you will, mentality, thinking about buy a little bit here. If we go lower, you still have... Money to spend if you still like the stocks, etc. And if you got to sell, sell just a little bit right here. Overall, that's one of the biggest differences between professional and a retail investor.
4: When we look at sentiment and things like the VIX or put call or, or uh, all these things that you have watched for years and years and years, it, what are you seeing and, and has it? It's been very sharp, but it hasn't been that that long of a time. We pointed out again and again, this is the quickest correction that, that we've seen in many, many, many years uh, from the highs.
1: Have we yeah. done enough work instilling fear at this point to make a, a tradable bottom, do you think, J.J.? Uh, well, you know, I think we haven't, Joe, you know, to your point about it being so fast. It's also been, you know, you've seen many sell-offs also. It's been incredibly orderly. I mean, they're really, besides yesterday on the close, when there was so much stock to sell, and they really slammed them, and you know you guys are showing the fair value, and you see how much the uh, s and p five hundred closed under fair value is there was just so much to sell on the close outside of that, this has been a very orderly sell off, and with that you know we saw gold and we saw bonds, two of the three sort of uh, you know measures of risk in my opinion, then then along with vix all starting to go up, but uh, with that, they remain elevated you know many of our clients are turning toward more, uh, I, I guess, risk-off assets. The way to look, the, I'm looking at it right now is, if, in a sports analogy, the defense has been on the field all week pretty much and I think the defense may stay on the field for much of today. Uh, the thing I'm most interested in today, you know, before we talk longer term, is can we muster some sort of a rally before the close? Because I would think people want to unwind their positions who have shorter term positions on the close. For those with the 401ks and longer term positions, this is a, a, a blip on the radar. If you're nervous, look at how you've done for the last two to three years. I'm gonna guess overall, it's been pretty pretty good if you've stayed invested. So don't let one week you know, change all your making. Okay. Cheese will be next.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, Kevin Warsh, former Fed governor and some say candidate for next chair of the central bank, says the coronavirus is such a risk to the economy that the Fed needs to act now
5: at a certain level the pain at this moment is inevitable the suffering is optional
0: we'll be right back
3: hi i'm ben risuto wealth strategist at janice henderson investors is a brighter future possible at janice henderson we think it is for 90 years we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together we know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com.
0: This is SquawkPod from CNBC. Stand
1: by Joe in three, two, one. His mic is here.
0: Good morning and
4: welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin.
7: Our guest host this morning is Kevin Warsh. He is former Fed governor and distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also author of a Wall Street Journal op-ed that was published yesterday that got a lot of attention. It was headlined, the Fed can't wait to respond to the coronavirus. U.S. bankers, U.S. central bankers should lead a global response. Uh, Kevin, it is great to have you
5: here today. Becky, thanks very much for having me.
7: We spent a lot of time on our air yesterday talking about your op-ed. The markets, I think, took it as a signal uh, as to what might be coming. In fact... Uh, very early yesterday morning, you did see the futures, the Fed futures, indicate that we could see a cut uh, as recently as March. Let's talk about why you wrote this right now, what you're seeing.
5: So I wrote it because, you know, I'm not in the middle of these things. Uh, Chairman Powell and his guys are. Um, it's a tough moment to be at the Federal Reserve. Uh, in the middle of a week like this, all you want to do is get to the weekend. Get to the weekend where you can have no markets trading or you can sit down with your kitchen cabinet ask hard questions and think what to do. And so I thought it was good advice. It was the sort of advice that we got in the darkest days of the crisis. I remember Marty Feldstein, who's no longer with us, but a great friend and mentor, Ooh, uh, when we were trying to figure out what to do, we were at Jackson Hole, and he went up and said, the Fed needs to cut rates materially, they need to do it now. And we said, oh, well, that's not so helpful. But he might just think again about where we are and reassess things. So it was just to give my best candid advice. They know more than we do about the state of the coronavirus. They know what their tools are. They've certainly had discussions, I would think, with their counterparts around the world. That's my unvarnished view. Get them to the weekend. Let them take stock. Um, The gloss of history forgets all the mistakes we made early in our crisis. I think they'll get to the weekend and they'll think anew about what the path is and what markets are telling them.
7: Why do you think a a coordinated global rate cut would be useful at this point?
5: So I think it's likely to be a gunfight out there. Uh, When I look at the world's big central banks, not a lot of them have guns. Maybe the Fed has a bigger gun than everyone else, but the Fed probably has a knife. I wish they had a big, powerful gun coming into this moment. I wish they had more ammunition. I wish for the discussions we've had on this show over the last nine years, they had prepared themselves for an exogenous shock because we certainly didn't know this virus was coming. But we knew that complacency in a world like this sets itself up for big tail risks. But you go to market with the Fed you've got, not the Fed you want. They've got a knife. Uh, there's a gunfight. You might as well go find some friends that also have knives and see if you can't do it together. So you're saying and there's some knives out there in the other big central banks.
7: You think there's some ni- they're knives, not guns, because rates are already so low and, 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 and negative interest rates in many parts of the globe.
5: Yeah. I mean, this is a time where the country needs to come together, where has-been central bankers and the current generation of central bankers need to unite But my judgment early in this crisis, as you know, um, was that the Fed needed to restock its toolkit, restock its credibility, create it such that they could shrink its balance sheet and prepare for whatever big shocks happen. And you know, what we find is that opportunity was missed over the last nine years, but you're gonna, the Fed will be successful here. I'm not doubting them. And believe me, we made plenty of mistakes early in our crisis. So if this thing manifests itself in an ugly way, my instinct would be, that chairman powell needs to reach out to his counterparts around the world and buy some time that's what a quarter point could do
7: let's just say you just said if this manifests itself in an ugly way meaning we're not there right now meaning it's not necessarily next week that the fed needs to cut
5: um i think the sooner they cut the better
7: kevin i i want to get into what a lot of people have been saying since they read this op-ed yesterday i think you just answered a lot of reasons about why you wrote it but yesterday um another former Fed official, Richard Fisher, was on uh, CNBC with Scott Wapner. And here's what he said about writing that and who was reading that op-ed. Let's, let's listen to it.
5: With regard to Kevin, there's an audience of one for that op-ed, and that is the president of the United States. I think he's uh, looking to possibly be the next chair when uh, Mr. Powell's not reappointed in 2022. So I understand his perspective.
7: Now, you did just say you thought the Fed maybe did the wrong thing when it lowered rates earlier last year. You're not talking about lowering rates all the time, which is what President Trump has said he's wanted to do. But what do you say in response to to comments like that? Because I heard it from a lot of places yesterday.
5: So for those of us that were in the middle of the last one of these wars, none of us covet being in Jay Powell's seat today. We still have scar tissue from it. And, um... And I think that's the kind of divisive rhetoric. That's the kind of sense that politics have entered everything we do that's frankly dangerous. The good news is for those of us that went through a real war, we've learned to block out noise, stay focused on what you know, make your best judgments. And the truth is there are plenty of areas of disagreement uh, uh, that I've had with the administration, all sorts of things, Uh, and uh, and I don't think that, that they'd be a surprise to people on the inside.
4: President Trump mentioned Kevin during the signing of the U.S.-China trade agreement back in January, saying Kevin should have fought harder for the Fed chairman job. Kevin Walsh.
6: Kevin, where's Kevin? I don't know, Kevin. I could have used you a little bit here. Why weren't you more forceful when you wanted that job? Why weren't you more forceful, Kevin? You're a forceful person. In fact, I thought you were too forceful maybe for the job. And I would have been very happy with you.
4: His ears just uh, burning a little bit there, but I, 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 what do you think he meant uh, by that? In terms, of, you, you wanted to keep rates high at some point or you were arguing for when did you push back? What, what do you think he was referring to? You don't know.
5: I couldn't speculate that on Joe.
4: Could you? Um, I could I, I come up with a few scenarios, uh, I think. But you've been made a very forceful case today for for uh, for some easing globally. I think, with central bankers, even though we're already negative most places. That, that is not what I necessarily would have thought your, your uh, tack would have been, given some of your previous comments, that we should have been raising rates through a lot of the last three or four years, right?
5: So when the facts change, we change. That's exactly. what we're supposed to do. When there's too much discussion about who's a hawk and who's a dove, the best central bankers going back to Chairman Volcker and others react to changing circumstances.
7: Kevin Morse, thank you very much
0: for being with us today.
7: Thank you, thank you, Becky.
0: Coming up on Squawk Pod, another conversation with the world's most famous investor, Warren Buffett. We're ending our crazy week with some Warren wisdom, from Wall Street to no angels in the infield. In any games,
6: including the stock market game, you know, a certain number of people cheat. And I'm sure the Major League Baseball will, will address the problem.
0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. All this week, we've been asking Warren... Warren Buffett, the legendary investor and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, joined Becky Quick on Swalkbox for a marathon interview on Monday. And it's been our pleasure to give you the highlights of everything from Buffett's first stock purchase in 1942.
6: Unfortunately, I bought in the morning. So when I came home in the evening and my dad told me that, Execution price, it was down 2%.
0: To how investors should weather concerns about coronavirus or other strains to the market. Buffett's wisdom is a thing. His insight is prized by the Wall Street community, CEOs, and the thousands of people who own Berkshire Hathaway stock. So for this podcast, I spoke to a colleague of mine at CNBC about watching Warren.
2: I'm Alex Crippen, and I've been at CNBC for almost 30 years. And I also edit and and produce the... Warren Buffett Watch Newsletter that comes out every Friday.
0: What is it about Warren Buffett that really grabs audiences? People love to read about him, to watch his interviews, to see him in person. What makes him so compelling? I think
2: it's a combination of his success and how he seems like a a regular person with extraordinary common sense. Mm -hmm. And that appeals, I think, to a large number of people who think, I can understand this. I can do this, too. A lot of his investment philosophy really has carryovers to what you do in your life. He wants to make sure that everything he does is ethical, both in his investments and in his business. Uh, He doesn't want to get too full of himself. He wants to have fun. If it's not fun, it's probably not worth doing.
0: Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders. Um, is very highly waited for in yes. the investment community. How hungry are people for his wit and wisdom and his really kind of narrative thoughts over the year ahead?
2: It's extraordinary that there's so much interest for what is essentially a, an annual report. Of course, with his, his letter is somewhat unusual for annual reports. Some other CEOs now are beginning to do it. Jeff Bezos uh, does it. Jamie Dimon does it. Uh,
0: Larry Fink has been doing Larry it. Larry Fink
2: has been doing it. I think it's become more of a, a thing since uh, Buffett started long ago. Um, and yeah, I mean, I understand that, that people uh, get together on conference calls when it comes out to exchange their ideas about really? it and it's, it's very, very anticipated. It's been getting shorter though, which is interesting over the years.
0: Do you do, you do a word count?
2: I haven't done a word count exactly. That's not a bad idea. Maybe for this coming uh, Friday's newsletter.
0: What are the kinds of material that you put in the Warren Buffett newsletter? We start with
2: uh, news. So uh, certainly uh, the, the letter is big news for us. We also have general stories, uh, what Berkshire is buying or selling.
0: Buffett is probably the only character in business news that resonates I think, to a mainstream audience. His name recognition absolutely. is so high. So when you're curating things from around the internet, it's not just business news sources. It's everything from lifestyle to the general news to local papers even. Yeah,
2: absolutely. There are, there are a lot of stories uh, around the internet that will take something that he, he said and turn it into almost a lesson. Uh, with headlines like "You know, Warren Buffett says this is the one thing you need to do to maintain your integrity in life," or Warren Buffett has these five rules that he follows in his investments, yeah. and those sort of stories uh, just keep coming. And
0: he's turning ninety yes. this year. Berkshire's not going to go on forever.
2: Well, he would probably disagree with you uh, and yeah, say that, yeah. that Berkshire is going to go along as it has yeah, because cool. of the way it's been built. Um, It has these businesses that are not being controlled from Omaha. Warren Buffett is not telling, as he said, seeds, candies, what kind of candies to put in their Valentine's Day assortment. These businesses that are running themselves with managers that he trusts, that's a very important thing for him when he's looking at buying a business, running a business, is he wants managers who treat the business as a trust for the shareholders. Buffett's feeling is that even after he's gone, that kind of culture will remain, that things really will be, he thinks, the same after he's no longer CEO. Um, I'm not sure everyone believes him, especially on, on Wall Street, N- not that they don't think he's he's giving his honest opinion, but rather that he is such a force, such a personality that Without him, the company just cannot be the same.
0: Thank you, Alex, for sharing a little Buffetology.
2: My pleasure. I'm always happy to talk about Warren Buffett.
0: To subscribe to the weekly Warren Buffett Watch, go to buffettnewsletter.com. Easy, right? You get the best of Buffett around the Internet as well as special video clips right in your inbox every Friday. I'm a subscriber, you should be one too. As Alex mentioned, the question of who runs Berkshire Hathaway after Buffett comes up regularly. In this next conversation with Becky Quick, Warren Buffett covers a lot of topics, baseball, catch up, and succession. In early 2018, Buffett named two Berkshire executives, Ajit Jane and Greg Abel, as vice chairman of the company. Jane runs Berkshire's insurance business. Abel oversees all non insurance, energy, railroads, candy, craft times. Speculation is that either man could be in the running for the top job someday. Another contender is Todd Combs, who runs Berkshire's equity portfolio and was recently named CEO of subsidiary Geico, the auto insurer. You've seen the commercials. In the release of the annual letter to shareholders, Holders, Buffett hinted that Jane and Abel will play a bigger role at the company's annual meeting in May. So, Becky asked for a little more than a hint. Jim Bean writes in a question. He
7: says, In the past, both you and Bill Gates have stated that half of the board meetings are spent discussing succession. How has this changed since Ajit and Greg are on the board? Do they leave the room?
6: They leave the room. Uh,
7: but uh, if I die tonight, the
6: board tomorrow morning knows exactly what they're going to do. But, uh, uh, Hope they're polite about it, let the body cool off, <laughs> but basically they know what they're going to do. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about it is, we own a, you know, the Apple and J.P. Morgan and all those things. I don't know who's going to succeed uh, the CEOs of of any of the companies. I think that we own stock, in. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're well prepared for ex- succession. It's almost going to be embarrassing. (laughs) How (laughs) well.
7: I want to ask you a question um, about Todd Combs and his new role at Geico. I got several questions that came in from that, and let's just use this one from Peter Lampras. Uh, During last year's interview on CNBC, after the 2018 letter was released, you were asked about succession at GEICO. And you mentioned that at a recent meeting at GEICO, you met about 40 of their top executives. And after each introduced themselves, they stated their length of time with the company. The shortest was 19 years. Please explain why none of these 40 top executives were qualified to take over as CEO after the retirement of Bill Roberts. Uh, Again, that's Pete Lampras from Chicago.
6: Bill Roberts uh, took over uh, not even two years ago. And last, and he th- th- has done a terrific job in connection with Tony. And I mean, Geico is my first love, uh, absolutely. <laughs> I I told the other companies that you can't you can compete for my second love, but you can't compete for my first love, which is Geico, because it goes back sixty sixty nine years and it, it did wonders for me. Anyway, uh, Geico, uh, Bill Roberts took over a little less than two years ago, and then in uh, either October or November last year, he said he would. He'd like to retire in a year. He would adjust it in any way that made it the easiest for us. And and uh, 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 we did not have the person, uh, uh, in my view, uh, to replace him at that point. And Todd Combs, who's worked with Berkshire now for 10 years, he actually was a product manager at Progressive in the past, and he knows a lot about insurance. Insurance is probably the only business I know something about that we're in, all the rest of them are total confusion. But uh, I, I understand the insurance business to some degree. Todd understands it very well at the operating level. And so Todd is there, and I hope very much that, that he's not there very long because I'd like to get him back to Omaha, uh, but our intention uh, always is to promote from within, and uh, we would hope to have, pick out the right person at, at, at GEICO. It isn't that there isn't somebody there. It's just you want to have the right one, because when you put somebody in, you're going to keep them there for a long time, and, and uh, or her. And
7: uh, Does that suggest Todd is not going to be there for a long time?
6: I don't think he's going to. No, no, the plan is not for him to be. I mean, he has not made a permanent career shift, uh, and uh, 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 he you know i don't i don't know how long it'll be there we have we have one important problem which is uh which all insurance companies have but progressive has done a better job of 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 managing uh, of 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 uh uh correlating our uh risk with uh, uh with rate and that uh is what we're focused on now.
7: Correlating risk with rate. Maybe. In other
6: words having the proper rate. Right.
7: Uh, charging and, the right amount.
6: For- charging the right amount. If you were in the life insurance business and you thought that 80 year olds had the same life expectancy as 20 year olds, you'd have a big, big problem. And what would happen is you'd write all the 80 year olds and somebody would write all the 20 year olds.
7: So in auto insurance, the same thing. There's a vast In difference. In auto insurance, I'm not sure. I, I might prefer the 80-year-olds over the 20-year-olds.
6: Well, you might. And, uh, you, you certainly would prefer the 80-year-olds to the 16-year-olds. I mean, right. yeah. yeah and you'd prefer the 16-year-old female to the 16-year-old male. There's a whole bunch of things. Uh, uh, so you've got to you really got to segment risks, and that's enormously important. Uh, and... Every company is trying to do it better all the time. We do it far better than we did 50 years ago. But uh, we have room for improvement on that. We're focused on that. And in the meantime, we're growing faster. We're gaining market share. GEICO is a fantastic asset. Todd's job is to focus on that, but it's also to work himself out of a job very very quickly, and, and preferably to work definitely, preferably to work himself out of a job with with
7: somebody from GEICO. Uh, Eric LaFont writes a follow-up question. He says, Warren, why did you and Ajit decide to appoint Todd Combs as the CEO of GEICO? That part you've answered. But how will he be able to run GEICO, manage a $13 billion investment portfolio, oversee Haven, and be on the board of J.P. Morgan?
6: Yeah, well, let's... It'll keep him busy, and we and we've told him he's unlimited use of a net jets. <laughs> really? Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, no, I mean we want him to be efficient. That's what net jets is for, and and and, uh, uh, and he, you know, he'll be working seventy-hour weeks. the The question about the portfolio is interesting. Most months, neither Ted nor Todd makes a single change in their portfolio. I mean, portfolio management is something that you learn over decades. And when I ran Solomon, I you know I was running Berkshire portfolio. It, it is not something that you have to sit there day by day and do. Uh, people do it that way, but uh, if there, there are many years where if I just left the portfolio entirely the same and didn't make any changes, we'd be better off. So it, it, it that's not about. But but you're, you're right in terms of J.P. Mortgage Board and he's he's going to be a very busy guy. Geico is the top priority, but it isn't going to say the top priority. Uh,
7: for a long long time. All right, let me run to another question that Max 0205 wrote in. Um, have Todd Combs and Ted Weschler outperformed the S&P 500 since they began working at Berkshire, uh, why don't you disclose their record? Why, why, don't I, why don't you disclose their record they said? Well,
6: we're not disclosing, uh, I, I, I think it would be very unusual uh, well, for a firm to discover uh, disclose everybody's sales last year among their salespeople or anything like that, I mean, they're, they're entitled to work in <laughs> uh, uh, relative anonymity. Uh, our directors know how they do. I know how they do. We made a lot of money with them. I feel very good. About, I mean, I feel very good about them in all ways. But we're not going to we're not going to tell you how much each candy store sells. It's <laughs> sees candy or who was the top the top person that. Uh, uh, at any place brought in in sales or whatever it may be uh
7: another purchase that came up recently kroger um and jason escamilla writes in was that one of yours or or a lieutenant's pick
6: it, it was one of the others uh and uh you know i i know kroger. kroger kroger's done a good job but it's in a very tough business i mean when you have when you have uh, uh, amazon and Walmart slugging it out and Costco taking a special part of it and everything. It's a tough business, but they've done a good job. And and one of our managers decided to buy that. Okay.
7: Um, And and then Kraft Heinz. This comes in from David Hall. He says, Mr. Buffett, while Kraft Heinz continues to whittle down their total debt, do you feel that the current dividend payout is appropriate, or should it be reduced further to free up more cash flow to reduce debt more rapidly?
6: I I think Kraft Heinz should pay down its debt, but I think... Under present circumstances it appears that it can pay the dividend and and pay down debt at a reasonable rate and that it has too much debt but it doesn't have some, it doesn't have debt it can't pay down and uh, uh, the the debt holders are going to get the interest and the the debt should come down year by year and I, I think it will and I think it can with the present dividend but who knows for sure in the future.
7: Uh, another question comes in from Beale again, on Kraft Heinz, and uh, this person writes in, private labels have performed very well against brands like Kraft Heinz, but they haven't made a dent against other brands like Coca-Cola or C's. Why do you think that is, and how do you think about brands' modes, given your experience with Kraft? Uh,
6: brands are always going to be in a fight with the retailer, and... Uh, it varies by country enormously. It varies by product category. Uh, if people, I worked in a grocery store in 1941. Charlie worked in the one in 1940. People would call and they'd ask for a can of peas and I'd write down a can of peas. They'd call in and they'd, they'd ask for Heinz ketchup and I'd better get, give them Heinz ketchup. They didn't care which brand the peas were. They didn't care that much whether the two quarts of milk we sent them were this brand or that brand. But they cared whether it. It, it was it was uh, it was Heinz ketchup uh, uh, that was it you know 1941 uh, some brands are terribly strong uh, you can't bring out a, a private label cola and do very well with it and people have tried for a long long time. on the other hand, you can bring out private labels and lots of products and and uh, you know you take Costco with their own Kirkland label I mean that that label grows dramatically. It cuts across categories. It, it, it uh, you know, it, it, it's done since 1992 or whenever it was introduced. Other people spent 100 years, you know, with huge amounts of advertising and special display, all kinds of things. So the battle goes on. I would say that the retailer has gained ground against brands to some degree, but brands are still terribly important. I mean, uh, uh, try and... Give me a $10 billion budget and ask me to bring out another Coca-Cola that makes a dent in Coca-Cola and I can't do it.
7: All right. Let's talk about a question that comes in from Rusty Thomas. And he's got a question on baseball. He said, given Warren's love of baseball and the contrast between his deft management of the Solomon Brothers scandal and Major League Baseball's inexplicable mismanagement of the Astros' sign-stealing debacle, what advice would Warren provide MLB Commissioner Manfred to restore confidence and integrity in the game? Yeah, well...
6: It survived the Black Sox scandal back around 1920, and people will continue to love baseball, but, uh, uh, you know, it was one thing to steal signs if you were on second base, but it's bad. Baseball will get past this.
7: You're people a huge love, baseball fan. Were you? You're a huge baseball fan. Were you surprised to hear about? Yeah, this? I
6: was surprised to hear about it. Yeah, but, uh, but then I find out that Bobby Thompson's home run—you know, <laughs> somebody just stole the sign, I think, off Ralph Breaker or somebody. You know, it, uh, so uh, people are going to, in any games, including the stock market game, you know, a certain number of people cheat, and uh, and generally we have people that administer things to try and minimize the, the cheating. And and I'm sure that Major League Baseball will will address the problem. Should the we,
7: Astros we, players get off scot-free?
6: Oh, I, I'm not going to make a judgment on that. But uh, Joe Jackson certainly didn't. Yeah.
0: That's the show for today. Thank you for listening all this way. And if you've been listening to Squawk Pod all week, Thanks for tuning in to our special coverage of Warren Buffett's 2020 shareholder letter and our extended conversation with the billionaire next door. If you're new and you like what you've heard, subscribe to Squawk Pod and get us in your feed every day. Our podcast is a hybrid that we hope offers you the smartest moments and best conversations from our three-hour morning show on CNBC with a little extra. And that is thanks to the Squawk Box TV anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, as well as the team behind the scenes. Okay, let's go. Special thanks to Squawk Box executive producer Max Myers and CNBC managing editor Lacey O'Toole and our own Becky Quick for their hard work in Omaha.
7: <laughs> getting more downloads every day.
0: Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we've given Becky an iPhone mic and a podcasting star is born. Do you ever listen to podcasts?
6: I've listened to maybe four or five.
0: Squawk Pot is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. We will all meet you back here on Monday. Have a great weekend.
1: We are clear. Thanks, guys.